Marcel Lombardo is a dynamic and curious founder. As a kid, he used to build electronic equipment for fun, buying parts, dismantling, and building them back up again. His obsession with understanding how things work led him to start coding, giving him the critical thinking he needed to envision product development opportunities. In this episode, you will see that Marcelo loves to share his learnings, his process, journey, and results. My name is Brian Reckworth, Valmos Latham. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for inviting me to, to your show. Finally, I'm here. Yeah, I'm glad, man. After a while, this is like 1.30 something. So we should have done it earlier, but know that we've both been super busy. I'm glad you were able to make the time and we can chat. Omi, you're, it's not your, your first startup and obviously a startup that's very well known in the market, but it's not your first time as a founder. In fact, we're both Endeavor entrepreneurs, so we've been in the ecosystem for a while and you were part of that first generation of ERPs in Brazil. And yeah. what do you think drew you to tech entrepreneurship and, and how did you get into the management software space of all different industries? Yeah, that, that's a fun story because before my first company, I used to work at Itau Tech. Itau Tech on that time used to be the largest Brazilian computer manufacturer. And I was raised like, like the hardware guy. I was a student electronics and I used to be the technician, the lab technician that replaces the chips to fix the boards from the computers. Oh, believe me, on that time, fix a computer board. Right now, you just throw in the garbage can or you throw the entire computer on the trash right now. But on that time, you used to replace the major chips in the circuit board. I had a girlfriend on that time and she was a programmer in a company. And I was staring to, to the book. This is so easy. Come on. Software is easy. Hardware is what I do. Engineering is hard, but software is pretty easy. And then one week after that, someone inside the Tech said something like this. Okay, we need to create a new application to keep track, trouble tickets opened by our clients. And I said, okay, I can do it. I read that book in few hours, I can do that over my weekend. And then I created this first application. And then everything started because they came to be, okay, once we are controlling the trouble tickets, now we can control the inventory and then invoicing and then the accounts receivable and so on. And in few months, I created the whole application running. And after that, my colleagues, the few technicians, when they visit their clients, they used to the conditions on that client and say, okay, maybe the software we use inside Itautech can help you. Six months after that, I was outside Itautech and starting my first company that came out as New Age Software, my first company. Omi was created almost 10 years ago as a spinoff of another software company that you owned. And, but now you focus on SMBs, right? That's an area of focus. What was the decision-making process like to focus on SMBs versus enterprise clients. I was just talking to Mercedes from Lightspeed Ventures and she was like, yeah, the enterprise is typically more lucrative. Sometimes you can start with SMBs. It's hard to go downstream. What was the motivation for you to focus on SMBs? Yes, on that time, if the client has less than $500,000 to start the project, I wouldn't attend the phone. But right now I go across Sao Paulo, in Friday evening, raining, 
four five hundred bucks. No, so it, it's a completely different market. You went backwards, man, Marcelo. You <laughs> that's it. That's it. I, I went very uh, backwards in in this in this point. But I think the main issue was that we used to operate in such a saturated environment. On that time, most of the enterprise companies choose international brands that they're managing software. So every month was always the same. You win three clients against the local player and lose three clients against German player. If life was boring, then we realized that there is a new opportunity with small companies. It's a larger market than the one we were in on that time. We thought to ourselves, okay, what's exactly this market size? Oh, it's about four or five million small and medium-sized companies. And why those companies still don't have any software solution? Because when we're talking about enterprise management software, it's a zero-sum game. You will only win a new client if someone loses one client. But now we could see that 90% of those companies, they don't have any software solution. Until now, my main competitors are pen and paper and Excel. We asked ourselves, okay, why those companies are not using solutions to help them manage their business in such a crazy country like Brazil. We are best known as tax hell country, for sure, from your years in Brazil. I do know, all too well. Uh, and the answer we came up with that because nobody did a solution that is really easy to use, affordable, and on the clouds. And that's why we started a new cell inside my old company. October 2013, we managed to sell the old company to an American group and spin off OMI as a new startup. And that's how I became a seven-people startup overnight. Me, five engineers, and one intern. That's amazing. It's not the typical route that you see of most venture-backed companies. You had a company, you had good volume of customers, you were, business was growing, it was significant, pretty good size. And then you turned it in for early stage startup, but you had all the know-how that you brought over. To be very honest with you, Brian, we realized that, that we entered this race for enterprise software pretty late. The race was end and we were not number one, two or three. So we lost this race. I never wanted to be the second player in the market. I wanted to be the number one, the first, and I couldn't find any chance in my previous business to sound like that. that. And that's one of the main reasons we started OMI. Okay, this is a new race. This new race is just starting. This one, I will never lose. Incidentally, it's actually a very large market. I remember the first time I ever came across the concept. I was walking the streets of Bogota, Colombia in like 2006. And I read Chris Anderson's book, The Long Tail. And I realized there's this concept where like all these, the aggregate of the small opportunities. It was in the example was Amazon and the small books. If you aggregate all the small books together, it's bigger than the bestsellers and the market is actually quite large. And I remember having that realization and you probably mentioned multiple or 5 million potential customers. So it's quite attractive when you look at the long tail, right? Yeah, for sure. And in, in this new situation, I don't have one single client that represents more than 0.00001% of my revenues. It's a pretty different pre feeling from my previous life where it was not hard to find a client that represents 3 or 4% of my uh, in complete revenues. So 
if this client jumps out, I'm screwed. And this is a, a totally complete situation. It requires a lot of humility to be able to be like, okay, we're late to the game. We're not going to probably win this because we've got these competitors. And it reminds me of Jack Welch. Jack Welch from General Electric. Jack Welch, when he took over as CEO, he looked at all the businesses they owned and business units, and he said, if we're not number one or two, we're getting out. That's it. And, That's and that, it. that was the same realization you had. You said, if we're not going to be one of the top businesses. That's, and then precisely what I'm talking about. That's awesome. Did you read that also? That's yeah, true. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, we probably... We read the same autobiography, I think. <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> That's amazing, man. Obviously, a good decision if you look 10 years later where you are today and business that you built. I want to talk about some of these initial expansion strategies and you know how you got going. You've got an exciting story about your early go-to-market, okay. and I love how you described it, building enterprise software, and then it's this ragtag team of five engineers, and you there's seven of you, which is like the perfect size for an initial company, but you... Go to market, you ditched the paid ads in favor of a partner sale model. Can you talk a little bit more about that decision and how it was made? The first idea, do we really have a huge market? Yes. How can we address the small business all? They told us everybody right now is connected. So we must use digital marketing, paid ads, and everything around social media in order to reach the, this audience. That that was my first idea. But the problem, the real problem is that our very first assumption was totally wrong. You remember, I just told you that we realized that all those companies, they don't have a software solution because nobody yet created a software that was easy to use and affordable and in the cloud. Okay, this is a lie. Uh, they don't have any software solution because... They simply don't care about management. They don't understand that this is a quick win opportunity. And they have a tough life and they think that's how things are supposed to be because I'm a small company. So they are not searching for a solution. And that's the main problem I faced in the early go-to-market strategy. Because overnight, we could find more than 100 competitors in the same space, trying to be in touch with the same small companies. And when everybody's using this very same channel to address the audience, the cost goes up, CAC goes up, and all the unit economics from our company started to deteriorate really fast. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. So talk about your, the funding environment and like where you were with like, how much cash did you have? Because one of the things is like, I see a lot of founders when they raise a lot of money in the early days, don't get us in finding stuff. No. Some founders that are second time founders that have op operated a business, they can raise money and still have that kind of like detective work on like, where's the best channel, co most cost effective. Were you funded at that point? Did you have significant cash or were you forced your back against the wall to figure out how to be scrappy and not have to pay Google and Facebook a ton of money? 
Well, we, we had money, but not that much. My own money, and we also raised it from Astella, from Edson Vigonati on, on 2014. And by the way, he gave me a hard time in this process because the first time I came to Edson and asked for his money, went back home with a list of issues to fix my business, not the money. And after some time, I returned back to Edson. Okay, this is all fixed. Now, let's go ahead. And he told me on that time, okay, let's go ahead. But only if you put the same amount of money that I'm putting in the business. Oh man, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not an investor, but okay, I'm going to take your terms and let's go ahead. So my first investor was from Astella. It's definitely a strong signal when the founder takes that hard-earned money out of their pocket and drops it into their company. And it's a sign of true commitment, right? When you're not all founders can write a check in the beginning because most of them have been struggling or don't have tons of resources, right. but definitely that's a strong sign. You've got a lot of skin in the game. That's because when you build a huge solution for more than 10 years and this solution far beyond where we expected, you start to see the patches connected, not so well. And all that you want is a new chance to start over from scratch without those same mistakes you did and on the first time. So I truly believed that we knew what we we're doing. We had a great solution, really help our clients to succeed. And, and the partner sale model is much more common in enterprise. Yeah, sure. So you were able to take some of the lessons I'm sure you avoided a lot of the mistakes uh -huh. and then you took some of the lessons. Walk me through a little bit more on how you executed that. Okay. First, I had no clue about what, what was going to work, but I had plenty of material on what couldn't work and never work. And of course it helps a lot. When we found ourselves in, in that huge competitive environment where everybody is trying to feel the audience paying more and more on, on Google. On that time, our first idea was, okay, we are making it wrong with ads. Maybe I was supposed to talk to our clients to understand them better and then redirect our online campaigns. And that's exactly what I did. At, at that time, only seven people, I took the phone myself and started calling our clients and asking them, okay, here's Marcelo Fronomi. And can I make you a few questions pretty quickly? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. First, do you remember where did you find? And the client said, yes, I found you guys in Google. Okay, Google is work. Fine. And the next question is pretty hard, mainly because you are our client for more than four months, but I will try it anyway. Do you remember what was the keyword you typed in Google when you found us? Yeah, of course I remember Wow, what a client. He remembers the, the keyword he typed inside Google four months ago. Okay, and what the keyword was? Oh, the keyword was only. Come on, man. What is going on here? Come on. Because we just started this company. Nobody knows about us. Where the idea to type only came? By the way, only is a new word that we just invented. Four words. We were able to buy the dot-com domain. It has no previous meaning. So where this idea came from? And the client said, okay, that, that, that was my accountant. My accountant told me to use your software. And then I searched in Google. So, all oh, right. So 
It's not Google, it's the accountant. And then we went to the accountant. Hey, accountant, why are you suggesting to your clients to use my software? And he said, that's because when my clients are running your software, my cost is reduced by more than 80%. And why? That's because you export all the information to my software, and then I avoid many data inputs and have tons of paper in my office and dealing with tons of paper with a lot of people. Instead, I just use a digital integration from your software to my current software and the job is done. Okay, there is something very valuable here. It's not just about to pay a bribe to the accountant to suggest that I should use your software. It's making a real progress here. And maybe we can push this idea to the market. So that's where the idea to use Thanos came in first place. I think this is, there's so many important lessons in this story. The number one lesson for me is the obsession with talking to your customers early is just so fundamental. If you were doing what everyone else was doing and you're like, hey, let's just buy some mad words and we're going to do some Facebook marketing and I'm going to hire a salesperson and they're going to just try to close these deals they probably wouldn't have had the wherewithal to just dive in and ask all these questions and then even have the idea of asking what their search term was four months ago because no one would think that they would know that. But as the founder, you're so curious and you ask every question because you want to learn it every single on every single word from your customer. And that led you down an amazing avenue of being able to use these channel partners. I think there's a second very important point here. As I told you, we didn't raise much money. And probably on that time, if I had a lot of money, I'll probably jump into the competition for Google with my competitors on that time. And probably we wouldn't have this conversation right now. I truly believe that too much money to early stage companies will help the founder to be less creative and try to execute the very same playbook that others did. I always say scarcity breeds creativity. And me and you started our companies in, a, in an era where there wasn't a lot of venture capital and it wasn't as common. And I think that we won't go back to the desert of 2007 or 2008 when I started, but there's a reset, obviously. And I think that a lot of founders maybe worry about that or complain about that. But really, we're just back to a place that's healthy. And you don't need 50 million, you might need $2 million, you might need a million and a half dollars. You, If you're just starting, you might raise half a million dollars. And even with a couple hundred grand, you can have a runway with your initial seven person team. And I think the last thing that I'll share, because you added another lesson, the, the other lesson is keeping these teams really small in the beginning is so important. I like to think that a pre-product market fit company should not exceed eight people. If you're bigger than a soccer team, you probably have too many people, at least the starting 11. You're getting to the point where every single person after employee 10 is expecting stability in the organization. <laughs> They're expecting predictability in the organization. Uh -huh. And Marcelo, me and you both know predictability does not exist at that stage. It's exactly. a constant roller coaster of ups and downs, your best day and your worst day is the same day and it's chaos. So you need to have people that are, that can be in the bunker with you and adapt. And so 
that's something that that's the third lesson. If I can add a third lesson to your early days. Uh, for sure. I always say you must, as founder in the early days, pick up the phone and talk to your client and understand value you are applying to the company. This is something you just can't delegate in the early days of your company. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about the expansion. What were the crucial factors for Omi's expansion in the past decade? You started with the small channel partners and you're picking off the each customer one by one. How did you ramp when you got into some a little bit more escape velocity and you got to how many customers you have today? I don't know, but a lot compared to those early days. How was that expansion? What were the key things for making that work? Well, right now we are about 150,000 clients all around the country, 1,700 employees. Those are some numbers. Those are some numbers. Yes. But when we realized we are able to reduce 80% of the accountant's cost, my first idea was to transform 70,000 accounting firms along Brazil into our software resellers. Because think for a moment, you will save 80% of your costs. It's, it means you are able to attend five times more clients with the very same team. And then also, I was about to give you 50% of my revenue as well on the top of this. So it's such an amazing offer. The main problem is that this attempt was a total failure. <laughs> And we didn't take in consideration that the accountant is an accountant, is not a sales guy. By the way, he don't have a clue how to sell accounting services. And then we were trying to transform those guys into software sales and it, it was not working. And in this time, there's another lesson here. During this time, two or three accountants, they start selling like crazy and your first reaction is to think, okay, if those two guys are selling like that, the other 69,998 will make me billionaire. No, they won't. Those guys are outliers. It's not how the other accountants are. And you can get really confused by outliers in, in, in early days. Outliers, they want to represent your real market, at least not as best as you want. Of course, they will influence the next layer and so on, but it takes time. And more often than not, you don't have such time. So our second try was to go to the accountant and say, okay, accountant, it's not working. I'm a software sales guy from more than 10 years and I'm still learning. You are an accountant. I can't expect you to do this job. This is my job. So I go there and I will sell to your clients. All I need is that you put here in my hands your client list. And now, do you think he gave me his client list? Probably not. Yes or is yes. They did. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I talked to my co-founder on that time. Is this guy crazy? He just gave me the <laughs> more, most important list he has in his life. He gave me Joe parting his relationship with his clients when they are suggesting then to use my software. So what is going on here? And that point, we, we really made the thing because we realized that the job to be done is not sales software, but to scale trust. And how can you scale trust 
in such a wide multicultural and crazy country like Brazil? And the answer is you must have people on the ground. Have someone from Minas to talk to someone from Minas, someone from, from Rio to talk to someone from Rio, from Nordeste to a Nordestino. And, and that's the main rule. You can't jump into a phone conversation or a Skype conversation with accountants from Brazil salt and expect him to give you this kite list. It, it will never work. So you deployed a massive sales force then? No, because we didn't have money for that. And then we encapsulated this whole commercial process, partnering with accountants. What do you sell to the accountant? Selling quotes because you won't charge the accountant. You sell a digital transformation project. And in one step from this project is to get in touch with these portfolio clients and offer OMI to, to these clients. And we package this whole commercial process as a franchising network. And by the way, I had a competitor on that time that deployed a huge sales force across the country and didn't work. What I mean is that you can never underestimate how powerful an entrepreneur, when he's allied to you, can be. And by the way, I created eight or 10 self-owned branches, and they never were able to be among the first-ranked franchisees in my network. And I pay the best salaries. I give the best offices, healthcare insurance. I pay everything that the franchises usually don't. Let me get this straight. So you started franchising the sales opportunity of the software. And did you sell the franchises? Yes. Right now I sell. At that time, no, you pay zero. You're a brilliant founder, man. Like you ended up having people pay you to be able to sell your products, uh, which is pretty incredible. Actually, the largest part of, of the investment required to a company like ours is investment in sales. And most of this investment comes from an investor named franchisee. Interesting. That's amazing, man. That's, that's a really interesting model. Are there examples of other companies that have deployed the same model? I never saw one like that because our franchisees, they don't operate support services or training zero. It's plain, a plain sales Got it. Uh, they just execute, they, they execute the sale and then you provide the support and the customer success. That's it. And it comes from my previous experience because in my previous company, and by the way, in all the old-fashioned ERP providers, is it still the same? The reseller or the or or the franchisee, he makes money with services, and the software provider makes money with software licensing and monthly fee. And here's huge conflict of interest because this is funny because I remember one convention in my previous company. And on that exact moment that I realized that my company on that time had no chance to, because I went to the stage to announce a new version of from our financial suite. And in this version, most of the features are pre-configured. So you don't need to add too many consulting time in order to make it worth. Now, so now it's required only 170 hours, no, no more 300 hours. So we are more competitive. 
and it's more affordable to the client. And then one of my resellers on that time, he rises at his arm and said, okay, why are you doing this? Are you trying to screw us? And on that moment, I realized, okay, if I'm, if I'm improving my solution to my clients, I'm going against my resellers because they make money covering the, the solution not working where I'm incompetent on making a great solution. And that the exact point where I realized that my, the, my company had no future. And my next company, if we had any resellers or franchisees or wherever, we must first take care of the alignment about what you want from the business, where you make money. I make money where you make money. If we don't have this kind of alignment, it's almost impossible to make channel network succinct. Yeah, it's, you've got to really think about what people care about and line those interests. That's it's a super interesting. Alignment. These are great stories, Marcelo. And I think for our audience, there's so many the audience can learn from these. And it's aligning interests is so important. If you're going to build a long-term sustainable business, you need to figure out who the actors, what are their motivations, and you've got it. You're servicing different players in the ecosystem. How can you make sure that they're all kind of benefiting from it? And any, anytime you have a business where it's going against the best interests of the partners, you're going to run into a brick wall because there's going to be limitations. That's why most of the software networks that use it to to have in Brazil, mainly in accounting software for accountants, they ended up in the court. Yeah, makes sense. Hey there, you might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. I want to double-click on the more recent years here. Changed a little bit your product positioning, and you've expanded and opened up a little bit of focus on larger businesses, okay. which is oftentimes quite hard. I guess maybe your experience in dealing with larger enterprise customers was helpful, uh -huh. but what's the transition like if you're expanding your product set to service more complex contracts and larger customers? We didn't. Our product used to be pretty complete since day one. We always had the best solution and it's not a solution that covers only the base. We always believed that you must go a little deeper on the functionalities, not to be that superficial solution. So we didn't need to make real improvements for larger companies. And the point is that when the pandemic started, we expected to lose 36% of our recurring revenues overnight. And good news is we lost only 2.3%. Such a great news. And I think mainly because of our typical client is a small company, but not so small. What I mean is a five, 10 people company is not that small. You, if you need to save 100 bucks, you can just go ahead and cancel your ERP because you need to take track, keep track of inventory, financial control, invoicing, 
etc. So it's not that easy to simply go ahead and cancel your software. But the bad news is new sales went close to zero. We were not able to sell to new small companies. And on that time, now put your head on, on early 2020, April 2020, March 2020, we remembered that along 2019, we onboarded larger clients than we expected. Companies making 50, 70, 100 million per year. And we asked ourselves, okay, what are you doing here, man? And they were coming by the else. And by the way, on January 2020, we released a new price list in order to charge a little bit more from those big guys. It was hurting to see someone issuing issuing 2,000 invoices per day. And we used to charge 300 BIs with 40 users, 50 users. And we don't charge extra for users. It's a fix. We remember it those larger companies. And we ask it to those companies, why, why did you jump into Omi? Oh, that's because I used to run a huge solution that I only need 20% of that solution. And those 20% cost me a lot and gave me a very hard time to keep it running. So we could see the, those 20% Omi does pretty well and it costs 5%. So we jump jumping into your solution. So our deal, our idea at that time was to, uh, okay, what if what is happening by chance, we push you to the market and go after larger companies during the pandemic. And it worked pretty, we used to go to larger companies and say, okay, what about you, you know, build, you reduce 95% of your software expense migrating to modern solution. But the fact is, nobody replaces the ERP software just to save costs. And when we ask it that kind of thing, they say, okay, I'm listening. And that, that's all we need. I'm listening. When we yeah. had a chance to show, to present our, our solution, and the client see the software saying, hey, wait a minute, what do you mean is that I don't need people to type in inform information into the software? Your software is connected to 100% of this public service providers. It goes to the, it gets the electricity bill, the mobile, the everything just go through the system automatically and it connects to all the banks automatically and to my suppliers. And oh, okay, this is not just a cheaper solution. It's a new generation. And right now, uh, when we started this movement on early 2020, Revenues com coming from companies making more than 10 million per year used to be like 13% in our recurring revenue stack. Right now it's 40%. In numbers, they are less than 5%. But we started pushing our solution to larger clients and it worked really well. We can see that we provide 10 times better for less than one-tenth of the price. So it's two magnitude levels. So this is real disruption for enterprise. Absolutely. And the fact that you had this sticky product that people weren't canceling, and then you had inbound interest from a new customer base. Whenever you get someone knocking on your door saying, hey, it's a strong sign that got something interesting, even if you're not marketing to them or selling to them. So that's a very strong signal. I want to ask another quick question before we wrap up with some final thoughts. 
What advice do you have for other founders that are struggling to pivot their business, whether they're in the early stages or the late stages of the business? Because sometimes businesses run their course and it's very hard to reinvent yourselves. You reinvented your, yourself, which is really hard because you had an established business. Viveral, you might not know, we pivoted from another business. And so I got to live this firsthand. But I'm wondering what advice you have for founders that are just struggling and they do you rip the bandaid off and you try to do something totally different? Like at what point do you keep a business running so you have a little bit of revenue if it's like, how would you advise? Of course, it depends on each situation, but what's your general advice for that? I think it depends on what you want for your life. Sometimes you want to have a decent life, just that. And it's pretty different from being number one. So what do you want for your life? I remember when we started to work with accountants, on that timing, we only have eight months cash runway in the bank. And then I went to Edson Rigonat with this new idea about accountants. Say, oh, it looks like it's working very well, but we only have eight months cash runway. Edson suggests me, okay, so stop the online advertising. I said, why? It's uh, the unit economics are not great, but still I can get clients from the sales. His answer was that's because uh, such a small company like yours will not be able to execute two go-to-market strategies well done at the same time. And that on that time, I decided to go to the maximum risk and we didn't pay an invoice from Google for two, for four years in, inside OMI. And what I mean is we went all in with the new strategy and it's not that it's not right now. It's pretty easy to say, Marcelo, you took the right decision because you've had a lot of competition, etc. But on that time, on that table, it was not easy. And that happened because I had to myself that I, I was not there to be number two or number three or to have a decent life. I was there to be number one. And I think it's not something that you can simply suggest to other entrepreneurs because it, it depends on what he expects from his life. Yeah, it depends on your ambition and how you want to uh, tackle it. Well, listen, I, I want to wrap up with a couple more questions to end here. Um, you've raised capital from massive global funds, SoftBank, Tencent, which it's great to see them dip into to Brazil more. What did you learn about evaluating term sheets and partners and... I You've now raised like what, 130 some million, 137 million or something like that. Yeah. It's a pretty penny, as we say. And what did you learn about capital raising and finding the right partners and the growth phase of your business, managing board, having a professional company? What are your takeaways from the last couple of years in, in learning and scaling? I think first, never stop talking to investors, even if you're not fundraising. Never stop talking to the market, to the investors. If they are able to keep track of what you're doing, they will trust you and it will be pretty easier. And uh, this is something I learned in the hard way. After we raised Series A, uh, our seed was the second investment round. After Edson, that we had a seed investment and company was growing like 300% per year using the cash provided by, by the old company. And I stopped talking to investors. And then when I tried to ra raise my Series A, <clears throat> the investors 
said that, okay, it, Marcelo is the number for real. Yes, it is. But how? I never heard about you. How is it possible? And I had a hard time to write Series A with a great set of unit economics in the company. Ne never stop talking to investors. And second, you must find a real partner in terms of what I mean is you must find a real great lawyer to support you. In this stage, when you have to evaluate a term sheet, there's a lot of catches and things that you are not used. And to have a, a good lawyer in your site is totally mandatory. What I used to say in this stage, to use a cheap advisor is to use cheap iron in your construction. If everything goes right, you will save half percent, 0.5% of the total cost. But if anything goes wrong, you build it, will get destroyed. You must find a real great advisor, a lawyer, and it's not cheap. It costs a lot yeah. of money. So I think the expression in Portuguese is o barato sai caro, right? O barato sai muito caro. <laughs> lo barato sale caro para los hispanoparlantes. Amazing, man. I think those that's great lessons here. Thank you for sharing your experience. I guess I'll just throw one last question in while we're on the topic of capital. Obviously, the public markets are not super open right now, but you can share this. But any any plans to go public? What's on the horizon for the business? Well, right now, we are moving towards break-even mid-2023 with plenty of cash in the bank, so we don't need to fundraise in these moments. But after that, the market will open somewhere next year. I don't know. And I don't know how open it will be. So we, we are making our plans without thinking about any new money. If something changes, okay, we can think about. But anyway, we're starting IPO readiness projects. Just by chance, you never know, but it, it, we don't have a decision to go public or to raise more money. And by the way, I learned it from many friends in Endeavor that IPO is just one more fundraising round. There's nothing special, so special about an IPO. Yeah, it's true. It's a capital source and the private markets offer that too. It requires a huge um, maturity level and costs a lot, but it's just one more investment round. Yeah, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Might as well just be ready. Uh -huh. Listen, thank you so much for making the time, Marcel. It's great to catch up with you and hopefully well, next time I'm in Brazil, we can get together. But I'd love to have you at the Vamos Latam Summit that we're going to host in Sao Paulo. It'll be September 28th and 29th. It's going to be an amazing event, three, 4,000 founders and investors. So we'd love to have you there as a guest. Oh, for sure. It would be a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.